0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, and I'd like to welcome you to the podcast Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top compliance commentators. The Everything Compliance gang includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, the founder and publisher of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, with affiliated monitors, Sarah Haddon, the publisher and owner of Corporate Compliance Insights, and Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London. In each episode, we take a look at various topics of interest in the compliance arena. We also have shouts and rants at the end of each episode. I know you will enjoy it. In this episode, Jay Rosen looks at the recent article by ECI President Pat Harned, On the new Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs 2019 Guidance and High Quality Programs, Jonathan Armstrong takes a look at the SACRID case in the United Kingdom, Matt Kelly looks at the FTC settlement for Facebook, and I step in to talk about two of the more interesting recent FCPA settlements. The first is Microsoft and the second, Technique FMC. Rants and shout-outs follow uh, the discussion, and I know we'll find them informative and pretty humorous this time around. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Jay Rosen, what is on your mind? Uh, This week, I read a great
1: post from our colleague, Pat Harnett, ECI, the Efforts and Compliance Initiative. And he's taking a look at going beyond DOJ guidance. And um, as of late, much to has been about recent guidance submitted on corporate ethic compliance programs issued by the Department of Justice. Um, this has been with the new Criminal Antitrust Investigations Program. And the thing that Pat is talking about is the DOJ does not really give a definition of a. When it comes to ethics and compliance programs, surprisingly, industry conferences, webcasts, articles are chock full of analysis of what this means for the private sector. This is understandable as history has shown that when these types of framework are released, uh, rather released by uh, enforcement and regulatory bodies, that the pundits and the uh, the paparazzi or the uh, ethic jump right on board. All this buzz begs an important question. While following such guidance might seem like a net positive forwards, could it actually be diverting focus away from developing high quality programs and protocols that are necessary to educational ethics programs? While important contributors to the establishment of ENC programs in the corporation, None of the guidelines, rules, or other compliance issued by legislative enforcement agencies to date have truly yielded an effective compliance effort. It has long been the case that when practices that constitute quote effectiveness, unquote, ethics and compliance, leaders think of expectations of enforcement agencies. As a result, the industry's definition of best practices. Has become an essence compliant with the law. ECC has used.
2: This conference will now be recorded.
1: Jay Rosen, what is on your mind? Uh, on my mind this week is high quality ethics and compliance programs. And what got me thinking about this is an article that Pat Harnett from the ECI, the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, had this week on Law 360. Uh, Pat goes on to say that much ado has been made about recent guidance on corp- corporate ethics and compliance programs issued by the U.S. Department of Justice. And not surprisingly, interesting conferences, webcasts, and articles will be chock full of analysis of what this all means for the private sector. This, too, is understandable, as history has shown when the government listens, listens new guidelines that the uh, ethics and compliance community is quick to follow. All this buzz begs an important question. While following such guidance might seem like a net positive for organizations, could it actually be diverting focus away from developing the programs and protocols necessary to create truly transformational ethics and compliance program? While it's important that contributors to the establishment of ethics and compliance programs follow this information, these guidelines, rules, or other compliance standards issued by legislative enforcement agencies to date have yielded a truly effective ethics and compliance effort on their own. It has long been the case that when it comes to practices that constitute, quote, effectiveness" unquote, and ethics and compliance organizational leaders think about the expectations of regulatory enforcement. As a result, the industry definition of, quote, best practices, unquote, Has become, in essence, compliance with the law. ECI recently conducted their own research, which shows a difference in the impact of organizations that invest more resources in ethics and compliance programs. Recently, ECI asked a panel, including former US federal officials, former legislators, senior ethics and compliance practitioners and academic scholars with specializations in organizational ethics and compliance to identify the elements that are common to organizations that have achieved uh, an ethics wide commitment to integrity those five concepts are 1 ethics and compliance is central to your business strategy 2 risks are identified owned and managed and mitigated 3 leaders at all levels build and sustain a culture of integrity. Four, the ongoing organization, rather, the organization encourages, protects, and values the reporting of concerns and suspected wrongdoing. And five, the organization acts and holds itself accountable when wrongdoing occurs. ECI next surveyed and collected data from more than 5,000 employees and organizations across industries, to determine if any influence of a high-quality program has impacted employee perceptions and behaviors. When it comes to ethics and compliance, a commitment to quality matters. For example, the research revealed that when a company implements a program that is in compliance with key regulatory frameworks, only 34% of employees reported suspected wrongdoing. Yet in an organization that had matured through the implementation of a high-quality program, 79 percent, more than double of the employees, reported observed misconduct. The higher the quality, the stronger the culture. This, uh this percentage is really going to blow you away next employees in cor- corporations with high quality ethics and compliance programs are 546% more likely to say that they work in a strong culture and the strong culture the better the stronger the culture the better the outcomes organizations with strong ethical cultures are 467% more likely to see favorable behavior from employees From the C-suite and senior leadership to rank-and-file employees, every level of the organization plays a role in adopting high-quality programs as business standards. All of this is to say that the recent DOJ releases of guidance are clearly an improvement over past enforcement efforts in the U.S. to encourage effectiveness. But nevertheless, it is more important to supplement these and other regulatory enforcement and legislative suggestions. As our research shows, the positive outcomes of striving for a high-quality program in an organization are numerous and make a tremendous difference in an organization's success.
0: So, Jay, was there anything in this uh, information or the article that you uh, referenced that really, uh, I don't want to say stood out to you, but perhaps because those uh, statistics you gave near the end, I thought were pretty stunning, but uh, anything really surprised you or did it really just confirm uh, what you had sort of known intuitively?
1: Uh, I think it is the latter, Tom. It confirms what we've known for a while, but You know, it goes back to that issue of, you know, whether or not you're doing a check box exercise when you're doing uh, an assessment on your company. So you can either check the boxes, which is equal to follow the best practices, or you can go the extra step and really give your employees and your organization something to think about to not only show that the corporation is compliant and cares, but also that there is a, an openness for uh, your employees to, import, uh, to report problems or issues they have and to realize that each person from the line to the C-suite has a duty to do uh, in their ethics and compliance program.
0: Okay. Well, as, uh, as I indicated uh, in introducing this episode, I am sitting in uh, today and I wanted to take a look at two recent FCPA settlements, really for the lessons learned. Because uh, as routine as many uh, settlements may appear to be, I think there's lots of uh, lessons that can be mined. So I'm going to take a look at two recent ones. The first one occurred in June, Technique FMC, and the second uh, here in uh, or rather last month in July, which is Microsoft. And the Technique FMC um, FCPA enforcement action resulted in a um, $296 million fine, uh, total fine, to Technique FMC. Uh, and the uh, interestingly, it was the first FCPA enforcement action we've had where two companies merged during their separate and independent FCPA investigation so that the merge entity had two sets of facts around – the uh, their separate FCPA uh, violations, which combined to one company. But um, the thing uh, that really struck me about technique was that the company engaged in significant remedial measures, um, including uh, disciplinary action against former employees, ceasing to use uh, retained intermediaries. Uh, their majority of technique's uh, illegal conduct was in Uh, Brazil around uh, Petrobras. So they banned the use of all commercial consultants in uh, Brazil, suspending payments to commercial consultants. The company uh, also um, enhanced its ongoing compliance program and internal controls. Unfortunately, in the uh, settlement documents, there was no separate remedial steps taken by FMC, which I uh, can report to you. The the thing, though, that struck me the most about this case from the lessons learned perspective was that, uh, once again, this is another case involving Petrobras, and uh, Petrobras was the customer, yet it was a part of the bribery scheme. So there were multiple instances cited in the DPA where bribes were demanded by Petrobras officers and directors or members of the Brazilian Workers' Party, and they were routinely paid by technique. The bribe payments were then charged directly to the contracts that Technip held with Petrobras. The bribe payments were approximately 1% of the contract value. When you have contract or contracts at $1 billion or more, that money adds up pretty quickly. Um, So that really brings up two critical issues, I think, that are important for the compliance practitioner. The first is, do you have visibility into the contracting process for high-value customers? Not necessarily high risk from the compliance perspective, but high value customers. Second, do you have visibility into contract chargebacks, which are paid back to the customer? Uh, Finally, for payments routed out of the company, do you have visibility into your AP function? Here, the bribery scheme involved routing monies to uh, uh, well-known money laundering jurisdictions such as uh, British Virgin Islands and others. Where shell companies were set up for payments to the uh, individuals at Petrobras who were demanding the bribes. So here we have the customer. Um, Draw uh, my the customer uh, was part of the bribery scheme, and in the uh, FMC side of the house, settlement re- documents made clear that once FMC made the decision to pay bribes, their hands, uh, rather the hands of the Iraqi officials. Uh, always came back, and it drives home the point that once you go down the road of doing something illegal, such as paying a bribe once, well, they've got you, and they will continually uh, come back to you for uh, more money. So once you start, it's pretty tough to get out of. The Microsoft case uh, had some uh, interesting lessons, I thought, as well. Uh, The first is around internal controls, and this is something that Matt has written about uh, as well, So we're going to link to his article in the show notes. Uh, But there was a massive internal control failure. It was not a workaround or an override, but an out-and-out failure. The SEC order said that discounts above certain thresholds were required to be approved by Microsoft's business desk, which had employees around the world. Uh, But uh, to get this discount from the business desk, you had to have a justification for the discount. And uh, that justification was cited without any authority when it was proffered or put forward to the Microsoft Business Desk. So the Microsoft Business Desk, which was there to act as an internal control, uh, actually you know didn't do their job. The business uh, there was no justification, and uh, even when the Microsoft Business Desks put a uh, limit on the uh, discounts in the form of time limits, where they were expire would expire at a certain date. There was no follow up from the business test to determine if the discount was revoked or otherwise taken off the table. And this one is, is really my, fi- my favorite, which was that after multiple requests from the discount of discounts came from the uh, Hungarian business unit, which is where the bribery was centered, uh, all came with the same justification quote, competition from other bidders, in customer price sens- sensitivity, and the possibilities of winning related services. Well, if you're sitting on the business desk as the internal control oversight and you receive multiple requests for discounts, all with the same language, it ought to be a pretty clear sign into you that somebody's cutting and pasting. And at least as the, uh, as the overseer, you should ask for a different business justification. Uh, but that's on the internal control side. But Microsoft, I thought, uh, really went in a very interesting direction as part of their response for, um, their remediation effort. In the SEC order, it obliquely noted that Microsoft had expanded transaction monitorings initiatives at the regional level and developing and using data analytics to uh, help identify high-risk transition, uh, transactions. In an email to Microsoft employees, company president Brad Smith said, we've increased our capability to prevent potential violations by using machine learning to help identify transactions and automatically flag those transactions that pose heightened compliance risk. We now run billions of dollars of deals in 57 countries through this program and have a team that applies additional scrutiny to these transactions. Uh, Microsoft also has been on the speaker circuit talking about this, and uh, I was fortunate enough to hear Alan Gibson, Assistant General Counsel at Microsoft, and Sean uh, Turcasey, a partner at PwC, speak about it at last year's Converge 18. They described how they had created a transaction monitoring system and how it had been implemented into the business units to more fully operationalize Microsoft's compliance function by developing compliance risk management solutions more quickly and more efficiently to the front line business units. It also allowed the compliance function to be brought in when their help was needed earlier in the sales cycle. All of this allowed a more robust risk management solution where the end result was a more efficient business process. It also had the side benefit of providing real-time transactional data that could be used not only to create a more uh, efficient business process, but overall profitability. So I thought the, uh, the response of Microsoft to aggressively remediate and to really move beyond simply uh, just putting a a, a platform in place to track all of these. They are uh, using this in a proactive way going forward. Lessons, I think, are important for the compliance practitioner because obviously it shows what you can do if um, you find yourself in an FCPA imbroglio and or investigation. But it also, I think, really demonstrates where Uh, some of the compliance risks have moved, most particularly in the uh, technique situation where the customer is part of the bribery scheme and where the solution has gone. And that's really where uh, the Microsoft remediation came in. So, Matt, what do you have for us on Facebook?
2: Yeah. Hi, Tom. Well, I've got uh, a couple of thoughts about the Facebook settlement, which I think is more interesting to compliance and risk officers for the bigger questions it leaves unanswered. Than the smaller questions that uh, the Federal Trade Commission and the SEC did try to answer when they hit Facebook with those two separate settlements that I think totaled $5.1 billion. I'll start with the SEC first. Um, so, OK, the SEC dings Facebook $100 million because of disclosure failures where the uh, Facebook had been disclosing to investors that a breach or a violation of their data by its business partners and third parties might cause trouble. And they disclosed that for two years that it might cause trouble when they knew that they already had that breach and it was causing big trouble. And it would be a material event until they finally admitted it publicly in 2018. Last March, that's when the stock price plummeted and everybody knew about Cambridge Analytica. So here's my issue, is that um, a lot of people have said that enforcement action is interesting because it showed that a company that experiences a material breach can't disclose a theoretical risk around it. You have to disclose that, you know, we had the breach. It is a big deal. No hypotheticals. And people were talking about Facebook as if that was the first time the SEC had imposed that sort of a sanction for that sort of a failure. And that's not the case. Uh, so what actually was the first case was in 2018, yeah, um, the SEC had fined Yahoo, or actually the successor company to Yahoo, after Yahoo sold most of itself to Verizon, um, but $35 million for essentially the same sort of failure. Yahoo, that gigantic breach in 2014 i think it was for two years they did not disclose that breach beyond disclosing that you know if we ever had a breach of like everyone on the planet and uh, maybe that would then be a material thing but it's just hypothetical investors so that's all we're saying when that's not at all what yahoo was doing yahoo already knew it had a big breach. And within days of that breach in 2014, senior executives knew this was going to be an enormous issue for Yahoo. And it would be a material event that would eventually affect Yahoo's sale price. And eventually that all came out. And so lo and behold, in 2018, the SEC finally settles that with Yahoo for $35 million. Here is my question. My larger question about the SEC settlement is that, Essentially, the same sort of disclosure failure between both companies, Yahoo and Facebook. Yahoo gets a $35 million fine when it was roughly a $5 billion a year business. The uh, Facebook gets a fine that is roughly three times as large, $100 million. But uh, Facebook's business is 11 times larger than Yahoo's ever was. Uh, Facebook is enormous compared to Yahoo. Yahoo, and it received a relatively smaller fine measured in against say total revenue for what i would actually say is probably a bigger material risk um you know Facebook lost more market cap than yahoo ultimately suffered when it had to set itself to verizon um substantively what happened with facebook and cambridge analytica like they potentially change the course of a presidential election with all of these data exploits that Cambridge Analytica then somehow Russia got its uh, hands on and they operationalized Facebook to wage this fake news campaign in 2016. Like it was a big deal. So what are we supposed to infer from these two different enforcement actions? Penalize Yahoo in relative more terms when Facebook did I would argue the relatively graver offenses both to invest and to society overall, and I don't know what the answer is. But hey, now we have two different SEC enforcement actions over disclosure around cyber breaches, and they don't add up. They aren't comparable, really, or they're not. You know, they're they're out of step with each other. So I'd love to talk more about that someday and like try and get a bit of this. Uh, but that's just the SEC settlement. Bigger concern is actually that Federal Trade Commission settlement of $5 billion and the raft of privacy compliance practices that the FTC put upon Facebook. I actually like the practices unto themselves, you know, an independent compliance, a privacy compliance officer, uh, independent outside review of compliance, uh, privacy compliance, a privacy committee on the board filled with. out there saying the, uh, price of privacy compliance has just gone up demonstrated by all the penalties that Facebook had to pay and the the steps that it has put in. I get it that the price of privacy compliance has gone up. However, if your ability to make even more gobs of money is outpacing your ability or the, the price that you're paying, then what exactly has this, uh, What exactly has this FTC settlement done to prevent future incidents of misconduct? And that's what a lot of critics of the Federal Trade Commission are saying about its $5 billion penalty. For Facebook, that's, I mean, that's a painful amount of money, but it's really not a lot. You know, they make about $55 billion a year in revenue. They'll probably make more in 2019. Um, All of these privacy compliance issues, sure, that's going to cost Facebook money, but Facebook had no restrictions put upon it on how it could make money, no antitrust issues or antitrust limits or anything like that. The Federal Trade Commission didn't touch that in its settlement. So as Alex Stamos, the former head of IT security at Facebook, who quit over how it was handling its Russia-Cambridge Analytica issues, uh, he basically said that this was Facebook gave the Federal Trade Commission a $5 billion check, and now it can do whatever anti-competitive price uh, strategies it still wants. And that's my question here, really, is that if the price of privacy compliance is going up, but you have no checks on your ability to make more money, which is exactly what this FTC settlement does, um, then... Who cares? Because if Facebook violates these terms of settlement next year in the 2020 election, like, oh, no, another five billion dollars, they can afford it. Um, And they're still doing what they're still doing. And there is no mechanism to reduce the risk of future abuse in this FTC settlement. So that brings me to my third Facebook point. Um, What I thought was most interesting was when Facebook disclosed that it is now subject to an antitrust investigation by the Justice Department. And the department itself had said, I think one day prior, it is investigating leading online platforms generally. That would be Amazon. That would be Facebook. That would, in my opinion, it probably should be Twitter and Apple and Google. Um, We don't know all the companies, but you can venture to guess. (coughs) So where is that antitrust investigation going to go? What sort of uh, remedies is the Justice Department trying to articulate here? Are they really going to, say, make Facebook divest its acquisition of Instagram? Would they say that Amazon should split itself up between its web services division and its online retail division, which operationally are pretty separate? You could do that. Um, Nobody knows. I don't necessarily know how a lot of prior antitrust enforcement rulings and history and precedents would fit neatly in the online media world where a lot of the consumers, the goods that you pay, like you don't pay anything for Facebook. You don't pay anything for Google. You're paying lower prices at Amazon than you would at the store down the street. So if consumers are not experiencing any financial harm, and we want to do some anti-monopoly enforcement action against these large companies, okay, I guess. I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but has anybody fully thought through what these principles would do for the future enforcement in the corporate world? Um, If we start splitting up social media companies now, What could, for example, a future Elizabeth Warren administration or Joe Biden administration or some other Democrats someday in the future, if they pick up these pieces of new antitrust principles that we are going to try maybe to enforce in social media today, could they pick up those principles and apply them to other industries? Because, you know, darn well, Elizabeth uh, Warren would probably love to break up big pharma. She'd probably love to break up big insurance industries, assuming that she wants private insurance to exist at all. Um, We are opening in Pandora's box of shifting to enforcement of antitrust along monopoly power lines rather than harm to consumer lines. I am very curious to see how that plays out. And I think that that really is an issue that could have a lot of implications for many more compliance officers well beyond online media. And I don't know exactly where that all might lead us, but we are at the beginning of a road that could take us who knows where. And that, that's my my big issue with these Facebook settlements and the coverage thereof.
0: Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a question or comment for Matt?
3: I have about a 1,000, but I'll try and restrain myself. I, I, I think that's really Let's insightful. And that that picks up on, um, I had a discussion, sorry to name drop, but I at least warn you in advance. Uh, I interviewed Max Schrems maybe three years ago in Paris, the privacy activist. And we had a really wide ranging discussion for about an hour or so in uh, front of an invited audience. And one of the things that we were just throwing around was whether... Any form of monetary fine can ever hit certain corporations Are some just too big to be hurt by monetary penalties. And Mm -hmm. and, and Facebook sort of has elements of that. It's it's interesting, I think. Um, For example, in Europe, we've just had a fine against uh, PwC for uh, its um, uh, poor privacy practices from the Greek Data Protection Authority, and they have fined PwC, but they've also ordered them to do remedial measures within three months. And we're increasingly seeing regulators, I think, on this side of the Atlantic, realise that in the words of the great Jesse J, it's not all about the money, 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 but sometimes you've got to have other remedies to discipline larger Uh, corporations. So, that's random thought number one. And I think we're going to see things like uh, in Cambridge Analytica, which a lot of the Facebook issues arise from, we have seen the UK data protection regulator look at stop processing notices with one Canadian outfit, for example, to stop them practicing the way they are doing. And and it's perceived that that hurts them more than just writing out a cheque. We've also got some uh, action in Europe at the moment around um, voice recognition technology, so home um, assistants where you speak to that assistant. We probably all know what I'm talking about without naming it. And, 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 and regulators suspending the operation of those devices whilst they're investigated. So I think we're moving to an era where we're going to see regulators not just look at the money and look at things like like you've just been outlining about change as well, so quasi-monitorships. But the other thing that I think is really interesting uh, from a sort of, uh, you know, where is the future of regulation point is something else that we, uh, uh, Max Schrams and I touched on, which is often we've got – Uh, e-commerce online operations that are so big that no one regulator can investigate them alone. And I think one of the things we chatted about was the um, German antitrust regulators' involvement in the online space, the UK fair trade regulators' movement into the online space. We've had word this week from the UK advertising regulator that they're going to get more involved in things like AI claims. And so you're ending up almost with this triumvirate of regulators, this holy trinity, if you like, of antitrust regulators and of fair trading type regulators and of privacy regulators. And I know in the US, those functions are more or less performed by the FTC but in Europe, they tend to be different regulators, depending on which country. And I think they're getting together more through organizations like GPEN to look at whether they can use all of those different powers together and whether it's a little bit like, um, I, I don't know, trying to attack a dinosaur with spears, that you know that one caveman alone isn't going to hurt but if every caveman in the world throws a spear into the side, then, then maybe they'll have, have some effect. And I think we're going to see more of, of, of that in the online world as well. And then my third random thought is, of course, regulation causes some of these problems. So, we did a piece of work prior to the implementation of GDPR where there is credible evidence that if you increase regulation and you increase the cost of regulation, you create quasi-monopolies because startups can't afford the cost of compliance if you add complex regulations, but established players can. And regulation itself can be a barrier to new market entrants. And I think we're starting to see that in Facebook as well, Whenever somebody sticks up their hand and says the internet ought to be better regulated, some of that plays into the hands of the established players because they can afford compliance professionals and startups can't. So we have to be careful whenever we scream out for new regulation because with that sometimes goes the creation of monopolies.
2: You know, Jonathan, if I can give you one or two follow up questions and like open ended ideas in response to yours. So, first, your point about are some companies so large now that a monetary fine is pointless? Google is currently the number one publicly traded company in terms of cash reserves. It is $117 billion in the bank as of August 1st. So, what would be an appropriate fine? for some sort of anti-competitive behavior against Google, what would make it feel sting? Is it going to be $50 billion? Because I'm willing to bet that if somebody tried to find Facebook, uh, Google, $50 billion, there'd be hell to pay. And the president would tweet Uh about it. And like, we're not going to do it. But if you find them $10 billion, eh, like they can write a check, who cares? Um, That is very valid. But if you want to start splitting up tech companies monopoly power now i'll shift gears to here's another hypothetical let's say amazon uh, is using ai to figure out what sort of products you will probably want to buy next given on what you're looking at right now which is big part of their business model so are we going to start saying that they can't use ai algorithms like that are we going to require that the ai get dumbed down ours is who on earth in the federal government is going to be smart enough to audit and deconstruct the ai like that because
3: mm-hmm.
2: the feds don't pay enough for data scientists they're all already working at amazon so like how is this going to work and i am not entirely convinced that the justice department knows any answers to these questions um yeah. so i like who knows where this is going to go but If we don't start thinking through ways to curb their ability to use their power in the future, then they are not going to be cowed by privacy compliance settlements and goof-ups when they're growing so fast that I don't care how big the cost of privacy compliance is, I can afford it. And that is exactly what Mark Zuckerberg and his lawyers are thinking today. That I would rest
3: assured on. No, really interesting topics.
0: So now that we have uh, rotated all the way across America, across the Atlantic to uh, the United Kingdom, Jonathan Armstrong, what is on your mind?
3: Well, I've been interested by um, the Sarklap case, or what some people call the XYZ, or some people call incorrectly, of course, the XYZ case, as it was known earlier. So um, the Serious Fraud Office back in the day, the day being July 2016, trumpeted uh, the XYZ case as its second deferred prosecution agreement. And it was something of a curious case even then. We knew that SARCLAD was based in, uh, in South Yorkshire. We knew that it had a US parent. And we knew that they'd come to terms with the government, with its DPA and that the U.S. parent had thrown money into the hat to make that settlement happen. Now, what we didn't know at the time is that a case that the SFO were progressing against three individuals was, uh, uh, was connected, and they sound like a, a law firm, but the three defendants, Sorby, Leek, and Justice – were acquitted in the case against them on the uh, 16th of July. And the, uh, this case was a jury trial. It involved uh, 27 overseas contracts for SARCLAD a.k.a. XYZ. And the jury decided that they were not guilty of uh, bribery-related offences brought against them. And of course, that's the jury's decision, so we don't go behind that. But it then becomes somewhat curious because we have a deferred prosecution agreement against SARCLAD, We have a judgment against them because, as we've talked about before, DPAs have to go to court in the UK and the judge has to look at them. We have an agreed statement of facts on behalf of the company but we have acquittals of the three individuals who the company said paid the bribes. It sort of admitted to pay. Mm. And we have an agreement from Sarklad to pay some six and a half million pounds uh, to government. And apparently about two million of that is from the US parent company. And it's meant to be the dividends that it received from the contracts that were uh, procured by bribes, so it, it ends up as as something of a of a curious turn of events, I think, and that's coupled with some news that Amlex uh, have uncovered again, uh, as a result of FOI requests, and that says that the SFO have paid around about four million pounds in prosecution costs. To bring this failed case against Leak and Justice, that um, it was a nine-week trial, that um, that the uh, uh, as I say the prosecution cost 4.1 million pounds, but that also the SFO have had trouble collecting the monies owed from the company. So they say that. Um, that the uh, DPA cost the SFO £648,000 to put in place. But they said that SARCLAD was struggling for money, and they've agreed not to pursue those costs. They said that there was a judicial review hearing that cost £24,000. And so the SFO are now down about £4.8 million, it seems, on the deal despite them having had a deferred prosecution with XYZ. So, regrettably, it seems that this case that was trumpeted by many as a success of the DPA system when it was announced in July 2016, from where we're sitting now, looks anything but...
0: So, Jonathan, the um, trouble collecting the money, that is something that we have seen discussions of here in the United States, um, where uh, companies that were in uh, financial difficulty, Key Energy is probably the biggest that comes to mind. Uh, they actually wrote uh, some uh, provisions into the SEC settlement agreement with the company that if it filed bankruptcy, certain uh, actions would be taken. But... Um, Do you you have a sense that the SFO uh, was aware of these financial issues or did they really get blindsided by them? Or is there really uh, any way for you to make that determination that's available in the public record?
3: I think it's hard to. I mean, I think there was some discussion about the UK subsidiary being of limited means at the time that the DPA was reached. And of course, quite properly, there was no connection made between the three defendants and the company, because the three defendants are entitled to to a fair trial. So it would have been improper to disclose Sarklad's identity and Sarklad's means at the time. But it, it is, I think, a challenge. And obviously, under a DPA, you can the the, the prosecutor and the company can agree terms that, that have to be approved from the judge. They could have agreed, for example, for money to be paid up front. They could have agreed the contributions from the US parent if the UK subsidiary was impecunious. I don't think we know the full facts of the case, but I think it doesn't sit, uh, sit too well and I think almost raises more questions than answers. I think Coupled with that, to make uh, the week uh, somewhat worse for the SFO, there um, has recently been a report into the internal, um, I suppose the internal temperature at the SFO by the HM Crown Prosecution Service Inspectorate. So that's a sort of, uh, as you would suggest, it's a It's a body that looks at prosecutors in the UK and and looks at how well they are doing. It's uh, appropriate to say that the new director of the SFO uh, called them in, and in part, they're looking at the previous regime, just as David Green looked at the uh, regime prior to him, which also uncovered some unfortunate things, particularly around payments and the use of authority. Here, it's fair to say that the, the criticisms are much less pronounced than of the prior regime. But the inspectorate's looking particularly at things like staff turnover. In 2017, 40 staff members left over a six-month period. And just so that you can get a feel for that, the SFO has around about 500 uh, staff. That's a fairly high proportion leaving over six months. Of course, not all of that should be seen as a criticism of the SFO. Government tends to pay less than the private sector, and some of those hires will have moved for more money rather than because they didn't like where they were working. But it does seem to say that the atmosphere within the SFO has not been good. Uh, The new director said that it didn't make comfortable reading, um, and it said that people were uh, too focused on quote injecting pace and thinking uh, about c- casework rather than uh, es- esprit de corps rather than discouraging bullying etc so it hasn't been a great uh, uh, a few weeks for the for the sfo for sure and of course there was this cloud over their existence under Theresa May, who had tried to abolish or merge the organisation previously. And let's please not touch on this in any detail, but we have a new Prime Minister here who may be looking at the failure of X, Y, Z and the issues that have been highlighted by this internal report and wondering if it's time to dust off those plans for merger or abolition.
0: Well, on that cheery note, we're going to move on to rants and shout-outs. So, Mr. Rosen, do you have a rant and or a shout-out? Uh, I
1: have – I guess uh, it's a shrant. It's a shout-out and it's a rant. Uh, this week on uh, Parit, uh, Parit Baraha's, um Baraha's uh, Stay Tuned, he interviewed Michael Morrell, who's a 33-year-old veteran of the CIA, And um, basically, he said that Michael was more of a Mueller volume one guy, more concerned about the Russian attacks on our uh, sanctity of voting, as opposed to Preet, who's more of a volume two guy, which is dealing with uh, potential obstruction from the president. I guess I will go online and say I'm both a volume one and a volume two guy. But I, too, agree with uh, Michael Morell, and I'm very concerned about the uh, threat that Russia and other hostile actors hold over the potential uh, results of the 2020
0: election. Well, that really rolls into my shout out because I'm shouting out to Moscow Mitch. Moscow on the Ohio as Mitch McConnell's true colors have come out. He has been bought and paid for by the Russians because he's not going to let anything, and I mean anything, get in the way of uh, Moscow, Russians, or anybody else interfering with the 2020 elections. He said, boys, come on in. We're not going to appropriate any money. We're not going to have any defenses. We're just going to have a good old time right down here on the bio. So shout out to Moscow Mitch. Matt Kelly. Uh,
2: I am just very very impressed about the uh, southern twang that you put on there, Tom. It sounds like you emphasized it a little more than your natural Texas twang. I'm going to uh, give a shout out this month to examiners at the Federal Reserve who uh, earlier this month, I think, or perhaps last month, they went to visit and examine Amazon's web services Uh, facility in Virginia because uh, Capital One is a big user of Amazon Web Services to store its data. And we probably all know by now that Capital One just disclosed a large data breach uh, that happened because a former Amazon Web Services employee deliberately hacked into the data that Capital One was managing and running on Amazon's cloud. Uh, That is a mess. By coincidence, Fed examiners did not look at Amazon because of that breach. But before they knew about that breach, by coincidence, they went to examine Amazon Web Services anyways, because it is such an important vendor to Capital One. And (coughs) uh, the Feds have talked about this before. At the end of 2017, They said uh, they published a list of systemic risks that uh, Treasury Department officials and banking officials are worried about. And for the first time in that report, they said that banks' reliance on third-party technology vendors, especially around cloud services, could be a big deal. And we need to start inspecting their reliance on these technology vendors. At that time, the banking regulators weren't even sure that they had the authority to do that. I think Amazon is still wondering Fed, do you really have the authority to regulate us like this? Apparently, this inspection that happened, there was some tension there. However, it all gets resolved in that specific example. The shout out is this is an important thing. This is a good idea. The Fed should do this more often. If they do not have clear regulatory uh, authority to go and examine technology vendors working with the banking sector, we should give them that clear authority because this is a big risk. The Fed has known about it for two years. I'm glad to see they're acting on it. I hope Amazon and others cooperate with them on it. But um, this is one of those rare instances where people seem to be paying attention to where technology is taking us and the risks it's giving us, and they are at least trying to address those risks. Um, So good for the Fed examiners for knowing that they should go and look at some of these tech vendors of big banks. And if you are a big bank customer who's listening, you and Capital One is only going to be the first. This is going to happen to you too. So think about who your tech vendors are because I think this is a trend that's only going to get bigger.
0: And if you're a first-time listener to this program, when Matt Kelly says something's a thing, it's a thing.
3: And you should listen.
0: So Jonathan Armstrong, what uh, what does it look like from your perspective?
3: Yeah, I was just going to back Matt up. It, it, it is a thing. We're involved in something at the moment that I oughtn't really to talk about. But every compliance officer out there Heed Matt's words, find out who your suppliers are, who's supplying your payroll, who runs your ethics line. These are critical vendors and you need to make sure that you've got audit rights because when they have a data breach and it's when, not if, you will need to knock on their door and make sure that they've learned. And I've seen a number of third parties becoming increasingly obstructive and thinking, you know, we don't need to give you access. And if you haven't got audit rights, they're not going to open the door to you. But my my, I was more of a shout out, having had a rant, I think, about regulation. And I was going to shout out um, to people talking about their mental health and their um, and the stresses we are all under in life. And and why that's brought it home to me is I sat opposite the wife of a prominent sports person who I'm not going to name for obvious reasons. Um, And it started off me thinking about data breach. It was relatively easy for me to work out who she was and who he is. And uh, and then I was really wanting to say to her as we sat on a train, you ought not to talk about this on the train because I've worked out who you're talking about. And if there's a journalist in this carriage, a, a, a less scrupulous one than Mr. Kelly, then this is quite a story. And then as I listened, I worked out that she was very worried about her husband. And we ended up, to cut a long short, having quite a chat about the state of um, mental health in, in, in sport and how that affects people near and dear to the sports person as well as the sports person themselves and where we ended up is I think we took comfort in the fact that things were at least better than 15 years ago or 20 years ago and there's a number of sports people in uh, right across the the piece who've spoken out about this you know many soccer players in the UK after the unfortunate death of Gary Speed, the wealth man, uh, the the Wales manager, Michael Phelps in swimming, um, uh, Jackie uh, McMullen apparently has put together a group of uh, basketball stars to talk about it. And of course, in the lead in the UK, we've had both princes William and Harry talk about their uh, mental health and and issues that they've had in terms of their um, professional careers as as uh, in in the military and the the early death of their mother. And it struck me that we've got the same issues in compliance as well. We have a prominent CISO in the UK, a guy called Tom Langford, who's done a lot of work about talking about the stresses involved in responding to things like security breaches. We see that in our practice. It's a hugely stressful situation for many. Particularly if you're trying to run a family uh, you know at, at a time of uh, a, a crisis as well, you know we had a data breach on Christmas Eve, and that was very impactful for the for the health of those people involved with them being pulled in different directions so I suppose what I'm trying to do is shout out to those who are talking about this issue in public and almost um Sometimes we know that people are under strain around us and sometimes those people don't want to talk about it at all, but occasionally they do. And sometimes we should just reach over our desk and ask them if they're okay and if they want to chat.
0: Well said. Gentlemen, this has been a uh, fascinating exploration of several issues and I look forward to us getting together again. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. I've listed uh, everyone's contact information on the show notes if you want to follow up with any information or questions, rather, about any of the information they presented to uh, to us in this podcast. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks where we have another episode. The Everything Compliance gang is Mike Volkoff, Sarah Haddon, Matt Kelly, Jay Rosen, and Jonathan Armstrong. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening, and... I hope you will tune back in. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio.
3: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.